welcome back to the podcast. I hope you are well. In this podcast, I'm going to be in conversation with Dave Snowden. I wanted to invite Dave in because we had a, uh, I thought a very illuminating and thought-provoking conversation in the summit last year, where he challenged, I think, some of the the cherished ideas within coaching. So I wanted to invite back in to conversation to see if we could take some of those topics deeper. I'm not sure how well we manage that, but uh, I think there's some really great stuff in here. And I think Dave is just a brilliant mind who, you know, he has this kind of uh, provocative style, uh, which I really appreciate. I don't think provocative on purpose, but he just likes to get real and, and challenge ideas that maybe we all buy into without questioning. So yeah, in this conversation, we're going to be talking about, it's kind of, I entitled it in some ways, reimagining coaching. We'll talk about, he'll he'll share where is coaching going well? Where is it doing good things? And where might we be wanting to do things differently? So we'll talk about moving beyond purely coaching the individual. That's a big theme. We'll talk about how the natural sciences can inform coaching and also how learning, we always have this idea that learning is only real when it becomes conscious and we can reflect upon it and articulate it, but how actually a lot of learning is, you know, doesn't work like that. So Dave will share his views on that. So Dave is... Uh, he's the founder of Cognitive Edge and the creator of the Kinevin framework, which I think is just really beautiful. So check those out. And um, yeah, you can find out more about Dave's work and his writing at Cognitive Edge. I, I find his writing great to, to kind of tune into. All right. So that all being said, if you're listening to this and you're not on our mailing list, you want to join the mailing list and hear about cool stuff we create, then you can head to coachesrising.com, scroll down, you'll find the sign-up box there. And as usual, if you feel inspired to write us a review, then I'd appreciate that because the more we get, the more the podcast shows up in people's lists and things. All right, let's dive in. Here's Dave Snowden. Dave, good to be with you again. Hi, pleasure to be here. Yeah, great. So um, I want to talk to you today about coaching, and you had some really interesting things to say in our summit conversation uh, earlier in the year. And I, you know, one of the things that's important to me with our community is to bring them ideas that challenge what they do and make them think differently about what they do. So I'm kind of tentatively entitling this conversation you know what could be the next generation of coaching that's a poor title actually it's not a very sexy title but <laughs> so um i think it's good to start off with what do you see as some of the flaws or the you know where we might be you know you might be seeing we're going wrong in in our traditional approaches to doing coaching in organizations and then I think there's good and bad, all right? So I think uh, there's a general principle here is that if something's been around for a few decades, it normally has something of value in it. So my favorite example of that is I remember when business process re-engineering came out. Um, and that was cool, all right? 
um, and it was great and it managed manufacturing process brilliantly, then idiots tried to apply it to customer relationship and it failed completely. And instead of saying, well, hang on a minute, it worked there, it didn't work here, so let's keep doing it there. People then tried to abandon it completely and do something different. And you see the same a lot. So I, I, I'm going to make some differences, but say there's value. Right? Um, so I think I'm seeing two distinct groups of coaches. One is sports coaches, and the other is the sort of individual management consulting coach. And then you've got the agile coaches who sort of, are really there to actually make sure methods and tools come into play. So it's quite interesting if you look at the differences there. So one of the things about sports coaches is they're actually coaching people in a physical environment mm. and generally in some sort of team environment because even the individual athlete is part of a team. Yeah, you, you don't get to be, you know, to win the Olympic 100-meter sprint without a very large team of people around you, you know? And the physical interaction is actually quite important here because one of the things we know from is, is the concept that the brain and the consciousness are the same thing is not true. We know that the body is part of consciousness and there's all sorts of other things in extended. So I think my general experience of coaches in that discipline is they're quite transdisciplinary. They, they've studied natural science. They understand biology. They also understand psychology. They got that sort of mixed group. Yeah. Um, you then got a group of coaches and a lot of this stuff comes from sort of Freud or Jung. This is kind of like the management consultancy coaches. And there's a general principle here that, well, two principles. One is I'm deeply suspicious of anything which comes sideways from therapy applied to an organization. So techniques which start off in that context, the assumption is that you need a therapist and you're in need of therapy. And generally, in my experience, it's the leaders who have that need, not the people who are having the therapist applied to them, right? Um, but that aside, all right, what you actually get is the assumption that the way we manage things is by changing individuals. So if we just get the individuals right, everything else will be fine. Now, there's a body of tools and techniques which develop for that. There's a huge amount that people can help be helped with individually. I mean, it's not that you're not an individual, but fundamentally, you don't change a system by changing individuals. You change a system by changing the way in which the system interacts. Mm. Now, a lot of the agile coaching market has been trying to do that. So I've got a method or tool, and I'll coach people in how to use it. But it's kind of like shifted away from that, and it's shifted into things like agile mindset and you know culture and those sort of areas. So my general principle on this is I think – while not neglecting the individual, we need to focus on linkages and we need to focus on action. Um, and we need to get rid of this obsession with articulating learning. It's mm. because that privileges. Say why? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's the old thing. I mean, you used to get this a lot. I, I suffered badly from guest out therapists in the 70s in the organization was in. You know, nothing matters until you've come to the mercy seat and confessed your sin. And, you know, all your learning has to be manifest and obvious, right? Now, the reality is some people like doing that, other people don't, right? Um, I learn a hell of a lot walking in the hills. I don't have to articulate it to learn it, right? Um, I've done work with executives. So, for example, we took a bank executives and we dumped them into um, a major supermarket to stack shelves, 
And then we took executives from the supermarket and we made them training bank tellers for a week. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, right? Well, originally I'd, I'd have put them into their own organization, but everybody knew who they were, so it was different, right? Now, we didn't force them to articulate the learning. They talked about what they would do differently. So this sort of introspection thing wasn't part of the process. The process was you've gone and done something which has actually profoundly changed you. You can't see the world the same way. So you're going to talk about what you do differently now and how you interact with people. But this sort of very sort of psychological thing or assuming there's some deep-seated motivation, we try and avoid that. Is it, yeah, so because that is like one of the sacred cows, isn't it, of therapy and coaching of, in a way of like, Oh, once it becomes conscious and I can name it and then, then I'm changed, you know, but up until that point, yeah, I mean, that goes, I mean, Freud and Young were quite cool in their time. All right. But we, we come on again since then. So the idea that there's, there's these hidden, you know, these fears you're seeking to suppress, which is Freudianism. And you, you need somebody to bring those out and overcome the fears or Jungian's concept that there are universal archetypes. This is actually bad science. It doesn't mean those two guys didn't have huge insight but the science is much better than that. So we know consciousness is, you know, if your brain gets killed, you're not conscious anymore. But it's also embodied, enacted, enabled, and extended. So it's not just a mental process. And also, we can learn without the ability to articulate. You can't, you don't, sometimes you just can't articulate, or you end up falling back to platitudes. So learning by doing is, is far more likely to achieve results. And you know, in a way, it's like life grows us, yeah? So those people yeah. who were switched, they were just being grown by being put in those different contexts. Well, you also tend to, it's, it's like you get things like, you know, Myers-Briggs, which is a pseudoscience, right? The idea that, you know, you can put people into little boxes. And I famously ran an experiment in IBM, which I was never quite forgiven for, in which we did a control test between Myers-Briggs and astrology. And we proved that astrology was more accurate than Myers-Briggs in predicting team behavior, right? And IBM got really upset. And the point I made to HR is anything which gets you to look at things from different perspectives has utility for humans. It's when you give it false objectivity that you've got the problem. And the mm. famous phrase from Kierkegaard, which I quote a lot, is nature may deal the cards, but nurture plays them. Mm. So the idea you have predispositions, if the context changes, you will change radically. So part of coaching is to change context, yeah, to, to get people to see things differently. I mean, and I, I had a, a great team working for me when I was in DataSolve, right? So this is company which became Data Sciences, which became IBM. And I had a high-performing team. I mean, we were the most profitable business unit three years running. We were doing decision support systems on computers. And what I did every six months is I took the whole team away for five days. So just, you know, left a skeleton support team. And on the weekend, we did something silly together, which involved getting dirty. So one year we went climbing in the hills. The next year we went horse riding. Then we went canoeing. And nobody was expected to learn anything from this in terms of articulation. It was just you got mucky together. It created stories. Do you remember when Louise fell off the horse? Yeah. And, yeah, all of these, you know, when Louise couldn't, sorry, Louise, is it when she couldn't get down Gordale's scar and you had to help her and suddenly, yeah, we won't talk about that, all right? All <laughs> um, and then Monday, Tuesday, we talked about what we'd done for the last six months, what we're going to do for the next six months. Now, the learning from the weekend spun over into the two or three days. 
Yeah, but we didn't have to articulate it. And I mean, also, I made breakfast for everybody every day, which was a nightmare. So that's, you know, don't talk about being a servant leadership. Go and do the servile stuff, all right? And the bastards maybe do the washing up as well, right? Um, now, what was interesting is HR then, HR moved in and stopped it. They, they forced me one year to have a, a facilitator who would get people to take people through trust exercises on the weekend. You know, like chaining up the canoes and walking across it, then we'd have to sit on the bank and talk about what we learned from it. Yeah. And it just missed the point completely. And then, then they banned me from doing it because I was recruiting internally. I never had to recruit externally. What, how come you think it missed the point? Yeah. Because for a lot of, I mean, you've got different personality types, all right? Some people love the confessional state. Yeah. And as I've said in several cases, Billy Graham has a lot to answer for in American management consultancy method. The assumption is you have to come to the mercy seat, confess your sins and, and join a new, new cult, right? The reality is if people develop narratives of joint experience together, they understand each other much better. They understand strengths and weaknesses. You don't need to articulate that for the understanding to be used. In fact, the articulation privileges people who are good at stringing platitudes together. Mm -hmm. I'll give you another example, right? So we're, we're on this narrative course in Palm Springs, yeah? And I was getting really fed up with what I called new age fluffy bunnies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so everything was hugely emotionally intense. It was highly facilitated. You had to do everything. So since and I got really fed up with this. So one morning we just didn't turn up and we got the cable car up to, if you know Palm Springs, there's an alpine plateau up there. And we just went for a walk and it's gorgeous because you go from the desert to alpine, you know, glades and woods and everything. And we came back, we deliberately delayed coming back until after the conference was over to discover them all sat in a circle waiting for us because we'd broken the rules, we'd gone away. And the facilitator, who was a total dominatrix, it was kind of like, you know, you, you have escaped from the process and we're not going to allow it. And she said, how could you break the trust of the group by disappearing and doing all this? I thought, okay, we can play this game too. And I said, well, we went up Palm Springs, you know, up to the thing early in the morning, and we came to a Sylvian glade and there was a deer drinking from the stream and the experience was such that we had to stay wrapped into it to understand all the things about nature which we've lost through the industrial age we live in. And we knew you would understand that we couldn't come and join you. And I remember looking at me with this expression of horror, yeah, because I was playing their own game back at it. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it, it, it's that game playing you're, trying, you're seeking to avoid. Yeah. Right. And what strikes me again about the example with the, you know, mucking about you taking people and then just, you know, going walking or whatever that you were doing is that you said like the relationships, it's like where the transformation was taking place as something collective. And I think that that's one of the things that I think, you know, in the um, West and let's say Europe and America, we've focused on the individual so much and we've, we've excluded this idea of the relationship being part of our identity. You have, it's actually Northern Europe and North America. Mm. And it's Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Mm. Um, because it all goes together. It's kind of like your relationship with God is individual, which is where the Reformation comes from. And that, that coincides with the growth of capitalism and everything else like that. You'll actually find, if you look at communitarian cultures, if you go to Italy or Spain or Wales or Ireland or Scotland or Latin America or Africa... Yeah, and they're collective cultures. Mm. And the, the famous way you do this is you ask people, which is the odd one out of cow, chicken or grass? 
Right? So three things, cow, chicken, grass, which is the odd one out. I won't embarrass you on this one, right? But the North American norm and the Northern European norm is to get rid of grass because yeah. cow and chicken are animals and they tend to categorize. Yeah, the commutarian, the Celtic Africanation norm is to get rid of chicken because right. the cow has got a relationship with grass so they can see the connection. Yeah. 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 And um, so, you know, if to reimagine coaching, um, that actually we would bring in relationships into the coaching. Um, maybe yeah, take coaching out of like the one-on-one -on -one in a room, put them in. Well, no, the you, you allow it, but it's a voluntary thing, all right? So if somebody wants yeah. to articulate their learning and they wants to talk with somebody, you should allow that, yeah? yeah? And you should set that up. It's just, this is not one size fits all. Some people learn by doing, some people then need to articulate it, some people don't. Mm. So the learning mechanism is embodied and enacted. Yeah. yeah. The reflective mechanism may be personal, may be collective, may be deeply private, all right? Or may need a coach or a counsellor. I mean, you, you just make those available. But the key thing is it's got to be voluntary, not compulsive. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And you haven't got to feel, you haven't got to be guilted into it. I mean, what the woman was trying to do me in, in, you know, in, in the deer and the, the Sylvian Glade, it was to guilt you into playing their game. Well, and also, I mean, Richard Biasis is doing fMRI studies on when people feel any sense of um, compliancy in learning that they close down. Um, I don't know yeah. which networks in the nervous system specifically close down, but it's less conducive to learning. It's also a lot of learning is done in the body. I mean, you know, we, we I mean, it, it takes two years, for example, for a London taxi driver to acquire the knowledge because the hippocampus has to physically change. Mm. Um, and Australians don't let kids drive cars with other than elderly relatives for two years after they pass their driving test. But it takes that long to acquire the ability to drive and have a conversation. Mm. Yeah. And there's, if you look at the medieval apprentice and other models, there's things you know by doing, or your body knows that aren't, again, against articulation. And a lot of social interaction, so for example, a lot of trust is determined by pheromones. Mm. Yeah, so actually working together and sort of half drowning in canoes and climbing up mountains is actually creates a level of intimacy. And I, I use the word advisedly, all right, which increases trust and increases interdependence. Yeah, and starting to realize that people are more than their work relationship. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, great. Um, and, and just, you know, um, the, the natural sciences, how would you see those informing a coaching approach? Like, well, I think you have to start from there. I mean, that's why, and I've argued this a lot, right? There are a lot of methods which have come out of Jungian coaching, which are perfectly good methods. I've got no problem with them, right? Mm -hmm. It's just the theory underpinning them is wrong. Now, if you understand the theory, you can then look at scaling and alteration. And it's, it's the famous thing I've said many times, you shouldn't scale a what until you know why. So we now know it's called, you know, we now know that consciousness is a distributive function. We know, we know the olfactory level of consciousness and trust determination. There's an awful lot we know, and we need to look at methods through natural science as a constraint. Mm. Yeah? Um, I mean, there's this... People talk about empirical, particularly in the agile community. 
they actually don't mean empirical. They mean the things I remember of what, what, what I think worked for me last time. And that's no basis to create a method. Right. So that's like a retroactive kind of approach. Yeah, and, approach. and the way we remember things if we succeed is different from the way we remember things if we fail. I mean, this is the other problem of reflection is if you learn something in the act of doing something, it's more substantial than if you think about it afterwards. Because the way we remember the past is changed by the needs of the present. We physically remember the past differently after the event. Mm. Just you said something that caught my attention about oh, a lot of the approaches within a, a Jungian inspired approach work, but it's the theory behind it that's wrong. Could you could you give us an example of that? I'll give you another metaphor on that, and then yeah. move on. So, I mean, we, we knew about gravity before Newton. But after Newton, we can scale our understanding. Right. So any intelligent person knows about group dynamics and you know and different ways of interacting. So you see people develop methods. You know, I've seen these within the social dynamics group. There's some really good social dynamics methods. It's just the theory is poor. Mm. Yeah. So getting people together, moving them between groups, multiple interactions between people, multiple conversations before you reach a conclusion, that's a really good method. And we know more of the theory of that because basically you're trying to stop what's called premature convergence. So if you allow people to settle in one group with groups of people, they will form an opinion very quickly. Yeah. Um, systems where people continuously fail, which game theorists have known for a long time, increase learning because we learn more through failure than we do through success. So human beings are quite canny. I mean, you know, they, they, if you look in our evolutionary history, grandparents teach. They don't lead the tribe anymore because the only ones who survive to teach are the ones who are pretty bloody competent anyway. The other ones died off early. All right, so... And human beings have evolved and created methods and tools which are extremely effective over the years. But as we get better and better at the theory, we can scale more ineffectively. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, the, something you said, which I, well, I know, you know, you're known a lot for um, your work around the Kinevin model as well as other things. And um, I wonder about this idea of the close the, close the gap coaching and a kind of coaching which could be more attuned to working with um, the emerging complexity of the moment, you know, and yeah. uh, that's different. It's not, it's not close the gap coaching. It's actually allowing for something else to take place. And I yeah. think it depends. I mean, for example, if I need sports coach, right. And I want to run a four minute mile, then that's a gap I've got to close. And I can think about right. all the ways I can close the gap. All right. Um, if I, when I manage salespeople, I gave them order targets. Yeah. Mm. Um, so there are some things where you can close the gap, but once you get into abstract things about people's competencies and qualities and attitudes, that gets a lot more difficult. Yeah. Mm. Because um, there's a certain thing called Goodhart's law: the minute a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a measure. Mm. Or the work we know that whenever people are working for explicit goals, it destroys intrinsic motivation. So one of the things we talk about in complexity is you start journeys with a sense of direction. So the key thing, if you are in a coaching relationship, is to identify the stepping stone, the next step, not the final goal. You might have an overall sense, but you want to discover novel things on the pathway. Mm. Right. And so 
would you then still hold that idea of developing a competency or would you like well i don't think i mean i don't buy the question of competency anyway yeah. it is it, it, it sort of links in with the whole myers-briggs nonsense and the whole sort of concept that you're born with innate qualities yeah um and we know i mean for example right we if you look at epigenetics we now know the mechanism by which culture inherits and it happens over a single generation but, I mean, it's interesting, Darwin said the Markinism must be correct. We just don't know the mechanism. It was the neo-Darwinians who hated it, yeah, mm. um, because they wanted a linear deterministic cause. So I think the key thing to understand is that the world is very messy. Mm. And human beings evolved to manage mess, right? So the way I normally satirize this is it's very simple, right? If you've got a, you know, a bunch of kids you know, around your house, you don't try and close the gap. You try and survive, Mm. right um and you don't have i mean i, I satirize this i had this terrible meeting in dallas once all right um in that for a start i was told i was working with the ebola management teams these are medics and i was told i couldn't talk about evolution because it was a controversial theory so i, I was still recovering from that and then i satirized the idea and i said yeah, you know you, you don't have you know, key performance indicators for your children a family mission statement and clear goals and and discover there's a whole consultancy business in Dallas which does that for families, which is like really sad, right? But no intelligent person would do that. You you manage, I mean, what we say is you manage the emergence of beneficial coherence within attractors, within boundaries, right? So you're managing a process. You've got a sense, you probably actually have a sense of what you don't want to go. In fact, some of the work we do is not to say where we do want to go, but to agree where we don't. And that leaves open possibilities, yeah, for emergence. Right. But then that seems like a worthy capacity to do, to develop, you know, to do what you just said. To, yeah. I mean, we, 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 I was just on, a, you know, two, two calls ago, I was on a call because we were working on the brand image for the Kinevin Centre. And we had the marketing guy with sort of, well, what, what are you trying to achieve? And I said, well, actually, we can all agree what we're not going to do. Yeah. And once we got that, everybody's comfortable because what you're not going to do creates a boundary, but it leaves open possibilities for people to do the novelty within those boundaries. And if you, I'll come back to my children metaphor, right? What story, what, what do fairy stories do? They tell stories of failure, not of success. Mm. We're, we're passing on our learning of what not to do to our children, but we're leaving open the possibility they will do something we couldn't imagine. And that's what we need to start to do in coaching. Well, and just to take that idea of children, because I have my own and um, that idea of surviving, I totally get. And, and it seems so I've grown in my capacity to be in the intensity of when, you know, a children's party, when they're all running around, it's like um, I've grown that capacity to be um, present and, and not kind of like when I, when it first started to happen, I'd be like, Oh my God, you know, and I would tense up in my body at some point and I just want to get through it. And, um, but now I can just stay more open and more relaxed. And I, yeah, think, I think that's like thing. a good, yeah. seems like that's important. Yeah. You know, it's brought me a lot. And, and it also brings in the linkages. The things you worry about most when your children hit puberty is who their friends are. Mm. Because after puberty, their relationship isn't primarily with you. It's with their peer group. Mm. So if you get into the wrong group of friends, their pattern set, which it's almost impossible to recover from. So again, the linkages thing comes in. 
So one of the, I mean, we use a process called trios where we put together three people from radically different backgrounds and set them to focus on problems. Now, the goal on that is, A, it's a very good way of solving problems. You put people from three completely different backgrounds together or people who are traditionally in conflict, but at a micro level, they can work together. Um, but your real goal is to increase the density of the informal network so that people can solve problems peer to peer rather than have to have them mediated by a coach or by an executive. Yeah. Yeah. So again, the value of um, the system or the network they're in um, and the, the interactions and the informal. And I think it's, legitimate, it's legitimate to manage interactions. It's not legitimate to tell people what sort of people they should be. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. All right. I think, A, you'll only get game in response, and B, I don't think it's ethical, but it's perfectly entitled as an organisation to say, you need to go through these processes, you need to talk to these people, you need to do these projects with these people, that's okay. But when you say you need to be this sort of a person and have these sort of competences and have these sort of attitudes, that's actually wrong. I think that's mm. not that lacks ethics. And it's also or, not effective. Yeah, yeah, yeah interesting, because you know, I'm just thinking about our company and we actually have, you know, a, a desire to have entrepreneurially minded people in the company that take action. But I'm just questioning that now, you know, like there probably yeah, is some pros to that, but it probably creates problems too. Well, let me give an example of something we're doing in universities. So what we're doing is we're saying when you join the university, if you're in engineering, you're putting a trio with somebody from humanities and the natural sciences. And every term you have a project that you have to work on together, which is competitive with other trios. Now, that's actually quite a useful process for creating resilience among students. But the real issue is to create dense networks between natural science, humanities and engineering so that actually novel ideas will merge and people will learn from other people. And what we're doing there is we're creating a process. Yeah, out of which the right sort of behavior will evolve. We're not trying to tell people what behavior we accept them to exhibit. Yeah. Where, what have we not talked about, you know, like um, as we come to a close, perhaps like what, what have we not, if there was another thing, if we were reimagining what coaching could be and I get in a way there, there's a paradox in that, you know, cause you're saying like, I don't want to tell people the way they should no, be. I, but... I think there, there is a real value for coaching in, in many ways. All right. So if you look at the master apprentice model um, and Coaches don't get this. They tend to be either a coach or something else. If you look at the, the way it worked in the medieval craft halls, and it actually this evolved all over the world simultaneously in various forms, yeah? is the apprentices kind of like do all the dirty jobs and make lots of mistakes and see what goes on. And then one day they're deemed competent enough, so they actually walk the tables and they have to dress differently because they're now journeymen. Mm. I mean, it was journeymen then, it would now be journeymen or women, right? And then some of them execute their masterwork and become a master craftsman, but not many. And the journeymen teach the apprentices and the master teaches the journeyman. And that's a coaching process. It's a mixture of being taught and doing. And because the apprentices work with multiple masters, the body of knowledge advances because they're all swapping stories in the craft hall. So one of the things about coaching is if, for example, you're a scrum coach, yeah? then yes, you can put people through a scrum course, all right? And, you know, I satirize it. You know, you're not a master. You're not a scrum master if you've done a two-day course and passed an open book exam, all right? That's just ridiculous, right? 
but you've got the basics. But now you need somebody who's got real experience to coach you through the process and coach your team through the process. Um, the trouble is the coaches have just got a certificate. They haven't got the experience. Mm. Um, and so we need to start thinking about coaching as something which goes with formal education. Yeah, and which moves forward. Now, to be clear, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm an enthusiastic rugby supporter, right? In my experience, the best coaches are not the best players. Mm. Mm. It's, it's often the players who weren't as good as the other players, but had to work harder and think harder. Mm. Yeah. Right. So Stephen Jones, to take an example, was a great Welsh fly half. He wasn't the most talented fly half. So he really had to think about his role. And now he's one of the great coaches. Mm. So it's, it's often that it's, it's not that you have to be the best, but you have to have the experience. If you don't know what you're dealing with, you've got a real problem. Mm. Yeah, I, I really love that idea and concur. You know, like the, I love this thought of, mastery being passed down and um, multidisciplinary approaches to learning so that, you know, there's, I I just, I'm just really taken by this idea of learning from the natural sciences, for example, and how that could inform, like, for for example, where would you invite people to go um, in the natural sciences? Are you talking about cognitive neuroscience there as well or? Um, um, there's a whole, I mean, first, well, I mean, there's a whole body of theory we draw, and I mean, it depends what you're interested in. Material engagement theory is fascinating, and I think people should know about that. Mm. Um, so, if you don't know it, human beings didn't have the capacity for abstract number until the Sumerians invented counting tablets. Right. Yeah, so, and, yeah, I mean, I, I'm 10 fingered, all right, um, in terms of typing, all right. So, Tools change us and change us much faster than we thought. So that's interesting, all right? Um, there's the whole issue about, you know, the four E's of consciousness, the sort of post-Cartesian ideas. There's complex adaptive systems theory. There's anthropology. Um, I've, I argued in a, an article I wrote for um, Excelos, yeah, um, that no engineer should be allowed out of a university without a training in ethics. Mm because the implications of technology are such that you need to do that. I've also argued very strongly that, I mean, when I was at school, we had the first ever school computer. Mm. It was actually, the computer was at Kelsterton, yeah? And we had a 300 bowed acoustic coupler, right? And yeah, I, I took control I don't of know this. What that is, but... <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, you put a telephone in that. Right? So basically, um, I wrote programs to fake my physics practicals. I was a theoretical physicist. I like the theory, but the practice, why am I doing this? I know what the results should be. So I generated the tables, and we sold that program to the first year six when we left, right? Um, but I remember we were taught how to use a punch card machine until we'd have a job for life. Yeah, and I wish I kept my punch card machine because it would be worth a fortune now. But I was quite, you know, if, if you learn to program on punch cards, you learn discipline, yeah? Compile mm. error card three, you learn to think before you act, right? right. Um, now, he was completely wrong on that. He did two things. One was wrong, one was right. One is he forced his entire academic sixth form to do RSA stage three typing. Mm-hmm. Now, we went ballistic at that, all right? We are the 5%. This is grammar school days. We're the 5% who are going to university. Typing is for girls at the secondary modern who will be our secretaries. It was a very sexist environment. Mm-hmm. But he said, you'll be grateful later. And I was, because we learned how to type 10-fingered from day one. 
And that was a wonderful motor skill. I still get frustrated with people in charts, yeah? And I still type that way. But he was wrong about the punch cards. Now, what we're doing in school at the moment, by training kids programming, is completely the wrong thing to do. Anything we teach them now will be out of date by the time they leave, and they probably do it better at home anyway. We should be teaching them anthropology, ethnography, psychology, philosophy. We should be trained to think about people, because that's it's been completely lost in the IT community. Mm. And the, the way I famously say this, and if anybody's offended by this, I do not apologize, is part of the problem we got with AI is the majority of software development has been done by misogynist males on the West Coast of the United States mm. who take Anne Rand seriously after puberty. Mm. Yeah, so, and, and the IT mm. industry has got a major problem with misogyny, major problem with misogyny, and it's not addressing it. And this sort of bias in the system and this unawareness of it, because people, we're programmers, tell us what the program will produce it and to hell with the consequence. We've really got to stop that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And well, maybe that brings in my last question, if we've got a minute, which is like the role of the numinous in coaching or, you know, I mean, I could ask, because I know you've thought about that, um, not specifically in coaching, but... A small number of people. Well, I mean, numinous is, is Otto's concept from idea of the holy. So it's the idea that human beings have a sense of something other than themselves. Right. And we know that abstraction or art comes before language in human evolution. So I can link it in with that. I mean, I think abstraction is key for humans. If we, if we keep ourselves in the material and concrete, we don't see possibilities. So the argument for the evolution of art is it allows us to disconnect from the material to be highly inventive. And evolutionary psychology is now basically saying human beings are religious, they can't avoid it because of that abstraction. Mm. Mm. What do you think about that? I think it's right. I think it manifests in different ways in different generations. I mean, that's what Rana said in Spirit in the World, yeah? Mm. Um, that some form of spirituality is part of what we are as a species. And you may, you may say you're not religious, you're spiritual, you're a Buddhist, or you meditate or you go jogging. There's all sorts of things we do, but we have to have a sense of something other than the crudely material. That's fundamental to humans. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we need to find ways to use that better. And that, that again is a coaching role. Yeah. I do think we can bring that into the coaching and, um, that not spiritual intelligence. I saw that the other day. Somebody had three circles, all right, which was cognitive intelligence, emotional intelligence, and spiritual intelligence. And at that point, you weep for this generation. Well, just say why, because I, yeah, I want to make sure I get that. Hmm? It's like this nonsense about you have an emotional, you know, emotional and logical brain. You don't, all right. You've got an autonomic and a novelty receptive aspect hmm. to your brain. We love these dichotomies and we love things in simple categories. Yeah. Just learn life is messy and, and life becomes easier. Just think of a teenage party. Mm. Yeah. And think what would happen if you went in and said, well, I need to address your spiritual intelligence guys. All right. Take them from a walk in the hills. Yeah. And yeah. yeah and they'll, they'll understand it without the need for articulation. Yeah. 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 I appreciate that. Some, somehow maybe it's useful to categorize sometimes in order to then as be able to see how that's it just is, incredibly it, limiting. And but there's a difference between the taxonomy and the typology, and people need to understand the difference. Taxonomy creates boundaries between things. The typology creates orientation. So typology is better at boundary conditions. 
Right. But you need taxonomy. So in Britain, we drive on the left. In Germany, they drive on the right. That's the taxonomy. Mm. Right. I think um, this has been very rich. Um, anything you want to say before we come to a close? No. Yeah. Um, yeah, I appreciate it a lot. And um, uh, I thought you were going to be harsher on the coaching community. <laughs> no, uh, you know, I, I appreciate you. It's, it's just, yeah, sorry. It's, it's just recognize that. No, sorry, I, I've said it all already. I no, no, I, I totally, um, uh, I, I really actually appreciate you acknowledging there's some good and there's some things to be pointed at. And um, so, so thanks, Dave. I want to just say thank yeah. you for that. Here we are. We're at the end of the podcast. Just a, a heads up again. If you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com. Put your name in the sign-up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. And just want to end by wishing you well, and I'll see you again next time. Bye.